Is there anybody who hasn't asked questions that would like to? Is there um, a beneficial way to work with the sound of silence? Okay, is there a beneficial way to work with the sound of silence? I need to back up and tell another little story first. And this is uh, Joseph's miracle story. I've performed one miracle in my life. And it happened in 1975. And I was teaching with uh, Sharon Salzberg in Mendocino in California, uh, up in the Redwoods. And just before the uh, 8, 8.30 sitting in the morning, we were sitting together, just talking a bit, and just spontaneously and suddenly out of my mouth came this big cloud of smoke and ash. It was completely Unusual. <laughs> and it was, it was very sweet smelling, and the ash was, you know, tangible. You could, so I was just like, whoa, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> but what to do? I mean, I had no explanation at all. So, you know, then went into the 830 sitting. And then it kind of receded into the background a bit, although, you know, it had struck me as very odd. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, we were teaching our first three-month retreat. This was before we had IMS up in Bucksport, Maine. And before the retreat started, I was in just the local bank in Bucksport, standing in front of the teller. <laughs> And again, just out came this cloud of smoke and ash. I mean, so the bank teller looked at me. You know. <laughs> so this time, I, it really piqued my, you know, intro. What is going on? So at that time, Ramdas was still living in New York, and he was uh, studying with and teaching with this kind of Brooklyn-born mystic, maybe some of you remember those days. Her name was Joya. And she had kind of a lot of psychic abilities. And so I had friends who were down in New York studying with them, and I asked them to ask Joya what this was. And there's this saint in India, a famous saint, Sai Baba. And people would go to Sai Baba, and one of the things he did regularly was produced spontaneously this ash, which is called verbuti, and it's like holy ash. And so when I asked Joya about my experience, she said, oh, this is the verbuti of Sai Baba. Mm. <laughs> I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> this story is related to your question, <laughs> but in a rather roundabout way. So then a few months later, I, was, I met uh, with Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher. He was in the States, and I told him about you know, this phenomenon. And he just said, oh, it is the fire element. You know, it's just some element in the body manifesting. Months later, I asked Deepama. I think I was in India at the time, and I asked her about what this was. And she said, Oh, you must have some disease. <laughs> so from the Vibhuti, the holy ash of Sai Baba, <laughs> to the fire element to some disease. Which was a very good lesson in how the mind can interpret experience in a lot of different ways. The experience didn't change. Right? The experience was whatever it was. And yet there were all these different interpretations with different feelings about it. And so that was a very powerful lesson. 
you know, in the power of interpretation and how that can really be a filter on how we're with experience. So this all goes back to the sound of silence. There is an experience that people have, kind of of an inner sound, and it's usually or often a very high-pitched sound. Some teachers give it the name sound of silence. Some people think of it as the sound of the unconditioned. When I asked Saida Upandita about it, he said, it's the friction of the earth element in the bones in the ear. <laughs> so this reminded me <laughs> of the miracle story. You know, okay, there's this phenomenon, right? A lot of different names which is given to it, and we might perhaps relate to it differently depending how we think about it. From the point of view of Vipassana practice, whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass. So it's another phenomenon which can be experienced, and many people do. When it's a predominant object, it could be fine just to pay attention to it for a while. It could be a good object of concentration, you know, where the mind could get really one-pointed on it. I would just be careful about overlaying it with any particular interpretation. Let it be just what it is. Thanks for the opportunity of that. <laughs> Let's do one at a time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the second one would probably push the first one out. <laughs> so the question was, you know, in having conversations with friends and some people claiming or thinking that certain drugs could be a shortcut to the experience of, of emptiness. Having spent my younger years in the 60s, I uh, certainly experimented a lot with different kinds of drugs and had powerful experiences on them. And I think for different people, certainly there can be mind-opening, heart-opening experiences. I think that's clear. Uh, that it can happen, that's not for everyone. And for certain people, that could be harmful. But for me, the big difference is, is and was the realization that profound transformation requires a path of practice. So it is possible that certain drug experience could open us to possibilities, but they're not really a path. You know, and if people try using them as a path, I think that's when it gets quite problematic, you know, and dangerous. So I see the possibility of a real opening, you know, to different and even profound experiences. But in the end, we really need to cultivate those understandings and the qualities of mind which make them possible through our own practice and development because then it's all integrated. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's a moment's experience with, sometimes with good, you know, understanding coming from it. But, as I say, it's, it doesn't seem to me a path of practice. Uh, for instance, and, but it has this weird tone to it, mm. to be addicted 
Okay, so the question was whether there's a certain downside both to insight practice and jhana practice. Right, right. Yeah. So whether you can use it as a certain kind of avoidance and or become addicted to the pleasant state of, of certain meditative states. Uh, I think there are are possibilities, both those possibilities exist. And they exist in several ways. One, people can misunderstand uh, both the meaning of and the practice of mindfulness, particularly with respect to emotions. You know, and so some people, and if, here's where guidance can be really helpful, because some people could be using, for example, the technique of noting, really not as a frame for then going into the feeling of it, but as a way of pushing it away. You know, and so really avoid feeling what's coming up. You know, and even sometimes. People get dissociated from their feelings, and so that's not a helpful avoidance at all. And it's not really the practice. But without, and again, at certain times, guidance is really helpful here. You know, so somebody on the outside can reflect back, oh, that's, that's what's happening. So that's one danger. Another danger, which is not uncommon in spiritual scenes and... I saw it to some extent in myself in my earlier years. Not a serious case, but a mild case of it. Uh, But I've seen it a lot. Um, And that is that we may have a genuine experience of the emptiness of phenomena. You know, just seeing the selfless, insubstantial nature. And we get attached to that level of understanding without integrating into it the level of interaction that happens on the relative plane. You know, relative or conventional meaning of self and other and personality and relationship. And there's a very famous teaching uh, by Nagarjuna, who was, you know, one of the great very great uh, Buddhist masters of India, ancient India, considered by many to be the second Buddha. He's so very renowned master. And he says, being attached to the solidity of things, you know, to taking things to be real and solid, is a big problem. However, being attached to emptiness, it's hopeless. I mean, he was really highlighting the danger. And at different times I've seen this, when people who may have had a genuine or a deep realization of the emptiness, but in some way are getting attached to it, then it can manifest in terms of relationships in the world oh, it's all empty, nothing matters. It's not first understanding that the law of karma, how to say this, that empty phenomena are following or manifesting as the law of karma. To see that things are empty doesn't negate how the unfolding process happens. But very often, oh, it's all empty, things don't matter. And so people don't take responsibility then for their actions. And really have seen this in different spiritual scenes, you know, and that's people can get into a lot of trouble with that. So that's another danger. The third is one you mentioned. There's a potential danger, which I've also seen happen, but it's not. It's workable. 
And that is when people do experience, you know, highly concentrated states, jhanic states, it is very pleasant. And it is possible to get attached to them and to be practicing just for that. You know, and even though the Buddha spoke of it often, these states of concentration as a vehicle for liberation, for using them in the service of insight, if one just gets attached to them and practices just for them, it's really, uh, it's a stumbling block, you know, when people get stuck in that place. One of the few times that the Buddha is said to have reprimanded Sariputra, you know, the chief disciple, second only to the Buddha in his wisdom, at one point where there was this Indian Brahmin, you know, he was, he was dying, I think, or close to death. And he wanted to, I can't remember the story exactly, can't remember whether he wanted to do the Brahma Vihara meditations or he wanted to do them in order to, to have union with Brahma, you know, in the Hindu fashion. But anyway, Saraputta taught him the Brahma Viharas. He attained jhana. He was reborn in the Brahma worlds. And when the Buddha came to find out, he said to Saraputta, that was not correct. This person had the potential to become enlightened, to become liberated. And you taught him a path to just another conditioned existence. So Sariputta quickly exercised his psychic powers, went up to the Brahma worlds, <laughs> and straightened this guy out. <laughs> uh, so there is that, that caution. <laughs> This is a topic, so the question was about free will. And if everything is conditioned, where does free will come in? This is really a discussion that I started having as a freshman in philosophy in college and have had for the last 40 years, and it hasn't really gone any place. So, <laughs> so the only thing I will really say about it and, and I'll put this out not as a not as a conclusion to the question, but in your spare time off of retreat, you might want to think about it. <laughs> and that is understanding the difference between conditioned and determined. Because things can be conditioned, meaning they have causes behind them, without the outcome being determined. So that's just one, one little piece to consider. The other piece, which I've always, I'm a little hesitant to say, but when I really look at the term free will and what those two words mean, I can't come to any understanding of what the term means. I mean, we put them together and we assume we know what it means. But as I understand that the term free will implies someone who has it. But if there's no someone in the first place, then what does the term mean? So I'd just like to leave it at that. (laughs) 
what has been suggested as this topic comes up, which it does, you know, it's because it's in a way, uh, I wouldn't say an obvious question, but it's a question that, you know, it makes sense that it arises. Whatever the philosophic conclusions are, act as if you have a choice and choose the skillful. Whether you're choosing the skillful is predetermined or it's arising in the moment or however it comes about, choose the skillful. (laughs) Abandon the unskillful. (laughs) Cultivate the mind. That's the best I can do. I could if I remembered. <laughs> Was there any more context to it than that? I don't think so. Well, if I were just to ask you mm-hmm. about existential fear. Well, the only thing that comes to mind, you know, in, in terms of that phrase, and I'm not sure this experience actually is that, but perhaps, perhaps it is. Uh, for, for quite a long period in my practice, uh, as, as I think Guy may have mentioned, or I can't remember who, fear was a very strong part of my practice. I mean, it was, that was the major big defilement that I was working with, struggling with, and over years, this, this, was not, this was not a quick thing. And sometimes I could see the fear arise in relationship to particular situations. You know, there would be some situation I could feel the fear and then try to work with it. But at certain times in my practice, especially on long intensive retreat, there were times when the fear was so strong I was actually afraid to go from sitting to standing. So maybe that's what existential fear is about. It was completely irrational. You know, there, there was no cause, obvious cause for it to be there. But for whatever reason, that's the energy. It was like primal, the primal emotion of fear arising, very unpleasant. It's not a pleasant emotion. So I was working with it a lot. And fear, 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 you know. Uh, The phrase Guy used the other day, I think, in reference to uh, his coming to to understand what real acceptance means, I had the same, I had exactly the same uh, experience. I was actually doing walking meditation uh, outside here. And again, having been through this, you know, for a long time, and I was creating a whole self-story, which was just feeding the fear. I was building up this fearful persona. You know, I'm such a fearful person. This goes back so long. This is going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind. You know, and I was really identifying with this. Is this is who I am? Actually, there were there were two. Two little turning points, two big turning points, not little ones. One of the turning points was at a time I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg. Uh, I can't remember whether I mentioned this in the hall. We were, we were just teaching in Texas sometime and going for a walk after lunch, and I was going on and on about my fear. You know, and she just turned to me and she said, "Joseph, it's only a mind state." You know, and of course that's something I had told different people countless times, but you know when you hear something, it's just the right time to hear it. That was one of the right times. Yeah, it's just a mindset. I don't have to build a whole self-story. 
but it was still coming a lot. I wasn't so much building the self-story, but it was still powerful. Then later in a long retreat, I was just doing walking meditation out here and you know, feeling it and feeling it and noting it. And in just the way Guy described, at a certain moment, my mind just settled back and said the same words, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment I had genuinely accepted it. You know, before that, I had been noting it, and I had been thinking I was being mindful and accepting, but I wasn't. It was fear, go away. You know, that, was, that was what was behind the note. And something I'm sure you've realized by now, you absolutely cannot fool your mind. <laughs> you know, we can pretend to be mindful, but the mind knows. <laughs> Is there acceptance or not? And if it's not, it doesn't work. But often we don't see it. You know, we actually think we're being mindful. So that moment of here for the rest of my life, it's okay. So it's okay actually became a, a powerful mantra for me. You know, almost like we would be a young child. We were the young child who was afraid. It's interesting that we would really know the right attitude to have with that child. You know, it's okay. It's okay. We wouldn't, we wouldn't try to convince them that they weren't feeling the fear or judge them for having it. You know, we would have a very intuitive, loving, caring, yeah, it's okay. It's so interesting that we have such a hard time having that same relationship to our own emotions. You know, but it's the, same, it's the same thing we need. So this points also to another interesting point, which maybe at some, some point can be a whole Dharma talk. But it's understanding the difference between recognition and mindfulness. Because often we confuse the two. Like in all the time until that moment, I had been recognizing the fear. You know, I knew what it was, I could recognize it, I could name it, but I was taking the recognition, which is really the fact of perception, I was taking the recognition to be mindfulness. And it's not that two different two different functions. So when you're with some deep feeling, whether it's fear, existential fear, or existential anything else, and there's that feeling of being caught in it in some way, or stuck in some way. Now, if it's, if it's a quickly passing emotion, or even not so quickly, but you know, we're with it, and we feel it, we feel it come, and we can be with it, and it goes away, it's not a problem. But in these things where, you know, that are deeply conditioned and we feel caught, then I would really look to see, are we simply recognizing it? Or are we being mindful in the sense of being totally accepting? You know, it's okay. If it's here for the rest of my life, it's okay. So I don't know if that's either responsive to your question or what had come up that morning. was about whether the big mind meditation, you know, was derived at first from some of the Dzogchen teachings. He's interested to know a little more about the relationship or the differences or the similarities between Vipassana and Dzogchen. That's a huge question. But I'm going to Well, 
When I first started doing a little bit of that Zochen practice, uh, I found that the metaphysics, you know, the the philosophy, the philosophical description of reality that the Tibetan tradition used and that, for example, the Burmese tradition used were really different. And sometimes they would say, be saying opposite things, you know, about the nature of freedom. And so the first long Dzogchen retreat I did, I was driving myself crazy, you know, because talk about the manifestation of doubt being perplexity. The question that was tormenting me was who's right? You know, if, if they're right, then they can't be right, and back and forth. And it was a very difficult month. But by the second month of the retreat, I really had a shift of understanding, and this became the basis for uh, my writing One Dharma, because it, it was really that dilemma which was behind that book, you know. How can we hold different traditions that may be saying different things, but hold it in a place of unity rather than conflict? So what happened to me after that month of practice, and I was really struggling, it was like, you know, sometimes Zen koans, the way they describe how you should hold a koan is like having a hot burning something in your throat and you can't spit it out and you can't swallow it. And that was the intensity of it. You know, it felt like my whole spiritual life depended on my resolving this question. You know, who's right? But then, there's, and this is the amazing thing, if we just go on sitting and walking and sitting and walking, somehow the Dharma, you know, unfolds in beautiful ways. I realized I was asking the wrong question. It wasn't about who's right. I began to understand that all the teachings... All the teachings are skillful means for liberation. And so I had this phrase in my mind, metaphysics as skillful means. Because if we take teachings as statements of truth, then yes, you know, one school says this, another school says this, they may say opposite things, so there's conflict. If we take all the statements of the teachings understand them as skillful means rather than as statements of truth, then we can learn from any tradition, from any metaphysics, if it's truly skillful for us. So then the question is, well, skillful means for what? That became very clear because all of the Buddhist traditions, whether it's Dzogchen or Vipassana or Zen or it's always skillful means for not clinging. That is the bottom line. And when I realized that, then all the dilemmas fell away. Is this helpful for not clinging or not? And we can find this in all the traditions. In in the Pali Canon, very often, many, many times, the Buddha uses the phrase, liberation through non-clinging. You know, so it's very clear that that's the essence of our practice. In the Zotran tradition, uh, so many different places, uh, Patrul Rinpoche, who was one of the great, uh, I think he lived in the 1900s, a wandering vagabond, uh, but one of the very great masters. He has this he has a, a teaching called uh, "Advice from Me to Myself," <laughs> and it's it's a wonderful piece. Which maybe in the next the next six weeks I'll read it. Uh, so if any of you want to stay, <laughs> <laughs> but he goes through this whole long teaching, and, and then he says, basically, and the essence of it all is not clinging. You know, that's what he comes down to. Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, one of the great masters of the last century, 
said that the essence of awareness, you know, so in Dzogchen there's a lot of emphasis on awareness, the nature of mind. He said the nature, the, the essence of awareness is not clinging. If there's clinging, it's not awareness. You know, so that when I really saw, okay, what does it all come down to? You know, what are all these different metaphysical teachings and what are all these different skillful means about? It seemed to me that this was just the core teaching. You know, and, and this is what we're practicing. And that way, we can learn from different traditions without conflict. If we understand, is this helping us to not cling, to let go of everything? In one of the Pali suttas, and one that I, I love a lot because the Buddha says, abandon, let go of that which doesn't belong to you. If you abandon that which doesn't belong to you, it will be for your welfare and happiness. What doesn't belong to us? Everything. <laughs> so it's the same teaching. You know, as long as we're identified with any arising phenomena. Because again, the, the Buddha was just so clear, whatever has the nature to arise will pass away. If it has the nature to arise, it means it's a conditioned phenomenon. It's arising out of conditions. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. And so if we're identified with anything that's arising, a thought, a feeling, the body, a sensation, an external situation, then we're caught. We're, we're, we're in Mara's snare, in Mara's trap. And as soon as we don't identify, as soon as we abandon or let go or let be, whichever, whichever phrases work for you, and simply let things arise and pass on their own, then we're in a place of freedom. So in that way, even though the methods may be a little different and the metaphysics may be a little different, I see the essence as being the same. Okay, so the question was referring to something I had mentioned at the Forest Refuge when he was sitting up there. In terms of practicing different traditions, that I had said something like, you know, one should practice in one tradition until its end before exploring other, other traditions and wondering what the end is. I'm not sure I would have said the end this kind of doesn't resonate exactly. Uh, I think it's more likely, and certainly what I meant, uh, is that I think we should come to some depth of practice, some depth of understanding in one tradition. Because, I mean, the real end, the end end, is arhanship, you know, or full liberation. I don't think we have to wait until then to necessarily, you know, explore some different ways of practice. But I think it is helpful just to come to where we feel, and this may be different for different people, but where we feel a real depth of understanding the practice, where we, where we really, you know, have had deep and transforming insights coming out of the practice, uh, and we feel confident in it. Because then it's possible to study and practice in other traditions and with other teachers without it causing confusion. Uh, I mean, if I hadn't felt so confident you know, in my Vipassana practice, that experience I described you know, when I started practicing the Dzogchen, I don't think it would have resolved in the way it did. I think I just would have really been 
really been caught by a lot of doubt and then confusion. And doubt, as you probably know from times that it's arisen, of all the hindrances, doubt is the most dangerous. You know, because with the other hindrances, as strong as they can be, you know, desire or lust or aversion or restlessness or sleepiness, we're still practicing. You know, it's difficult and we're, we're struggling, you know, with those mind states, but we're still on the path. When doubt is there and it's strong and we are buying into it and we're not seeing it, that just stops us. You know, and so that's why it's considered really important to understand that particular factor of mind and to work with it. So that's by way of saying to practice until we really don't have much doubt about our practice. Then opening up you know, to other ways other teachers can be enriching. So I'll just give you one example of, of one aspect that was particularly enriching for me, which we brought into these teachings. Even though this is found in the Pali Canon, it's, it wasn't, this aspect was not given as much emphasis as in some of the later traditions. And that's the aspect of bodhicitta. You know, that, that aspiration that our practice be for the awakening of all. So it's there. When, when you read the Pali and the Buddha will often, he, you know, after the first 60 arhans became enlightened, he kind of sent them out, you know, work for the welfare and the benefit of all, you who have done your duty. So it's there, but as, as a specific teaching, it's not emphasized that much. Whereas in the Tibetan tradition, it's emphasized a lot. And I just found it really inspiring, you know, to, to bring that aspect sort of front and center. You know, I had always realized that the practice will inevitably help others because if our minds become more peaceful and more loving and more patient, of course it's going to benefit everybody we meet and everybody we're close to. But the teaching of bodhicitta it sort of brings that motivation up front rather than being seen as a consequence of our practice. It can become the motivation for our practice. May my practice be for the welfare, the awakening of all. And I just find that it just expanded the whole view of practice and I felt to be very energizing. So that's just an example, you know, of how once we're confident in our practice and then we explore some other traditions, uh, it can be very enriching. But if we do it too soon, you know, before we're really stable in our understanding, it can get confusing because, <laughs> because some of the teachings are apparently saying different things. So one of the questions was things that have been brought in, other things that have been brought in from some other traditions, and also besides Muninja's kind of openness to big mind meditation, what presumably other teachers or what other teachers have thought of the big mind meditation? Not just that, oh. but anything that you've brought into the Right, right. I'll answer the second one first. As with every endeavor, there is a liberal conservative spectrum. And this is not generally not to put a, any hierarchy on it because I see value of the whole spectrum. So in the teachings and with teachers, there are some teachers really and that are very conservative, that are conserving a particular tradition. And each tradition has its own integrity. 
so that they are worth preserving. Other teachers, say the more liberal wing, it's almost as if they have a different mission or a different interest, you know, and our interest in kind of bringing in other things and synthesizing. So it very much depends. Some teachers, some of my teachers, would look upon big mind meditation probably with horror. <laughs> Whereas Munindraji, Munindraji was, he was an example of just somebody who was very open. You know, and so it just depends. I want to emphasize that I really think the whole spectrum is needed. It's, we want to conserve the integrity of particular traditions and also for some to be exploring the synthesis. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of what we have brought in, most has been, I think, from the Tibetans because we've uh, practiced mostly with that, but uh, there's, there's been there's been some Zen influence, particularly from uh, readings. You know, some of the Zen masters uh, and the texts are just so wonderful and so such direct pointings. Uh, there's one one book I mentioned in an interview, which had quite a quite a strong uh, influence on me. It was by the Zen master, Korean Zen master Shunul. C-H-I-N-U-L. He was, I think, 12th century or 11th century, one of the founders of Korean Zen. There's a book of his teachings called Tracing Back the Radiance. What I liked about his teaching, he framed it all. He, He had this wonderful phrase. He framed all of his teachings in terms of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So that was his... And so the teachings were always pointing to that moment of sudden awakening in terms of understanding the nature of the mind, the empty, aware nature of mind, free of any clinging. And so it was always pointing to the realization of that, but also acknowledging that one moment's realization, as important as it is for reorienting, that's just the beginning. You know that that then it needs a gradual cultivation, you know, over a long time to integrate that understanding, and so that just feels so true to my own experience and you know to the experience of so many yogis. Over these weeks, you know, in one way or another, I'm sure you've had even moments of aha moments. You know, we, we, we just understand something at whatever level it may be, but something we didn't understand before about our minds. We could call that a moment of sudden awakening to something, but then it needs the gradual cultivation. So it grows, it deepens, it matures. You know, and so this is the path aspect. You know, in a way, that goes back to the very first question. You know, different drug experience might give us a moment of sudden awakening, but it doesn't give us the gradual cultivation. And it, it, it really can't give us that. And so it's not really a path. Mm-hmm. 
because of that question of the balance of understanding the practice being described both as you know bare awareness, which has this passive receptive quality, and then also described as an investigation into the nature of reality. What you're really asking about in in a fundamental way is it's a description of the first two factors of enlightenment. You know the the, the first two factors of awakening. That my, the nature of mindfulness is that quality of just bare attention. You know, it, it, it's aware of what's arising without clinging, without condemning, without identifying. So that's very much the first aspect of what you described. The wisdom aspect of mind, which is the second factor of enlightenment, you know, that investigation of dhammas, I think we talked about this a little bit the other morning. Uh, that's the investigation of the more active aspect, which begins to highlight and see the fact that whatever it is, that is that's arising is changing. So we're investigating the impermanent nature of things. Just one way of doing this, which I think we've mentioned in the hall, when we would report to Sayadaw Upandita, he, he had a very specific way of reporting, which was quite challenging, you know, where we would need to report what was arising in our sittings or walking, and also describe what happened to the object as we observed it. You know, so sensation, you know, sitting, rising, falling, describe the different sensations, then felt pressure. You know, as I observed the pressure, it got stronger, or it got weaker, or it disappeared, or something else arose. So to be looking that carefully to see what happens to the object, that, that's a more active investigation aspect. Right? So that's just one example. It's also the investigation you know, of the unsatisfying, the unreliable nature, the selfless nature. So all of that is is part of the investi- investigating faculty. At, at what point do we emphasize one versus the other? It, it seems to me like the investigating quality is really, I mean, it's where the meat is, so to speak, or the tofu. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the bare awareness yeah. is just what I sort of get going to sort of settle my mind and get some place to be so that I can start. Yeah. Okay, so the, so the question is, but when do you do one or the other? They really work together because if you're not mindful of what's arising, there's no foundation to investigate. So you need, you need the mindfulness and a certain stability of mindfulness in order to investigate. Because as you have undoubtedly noticed, you know, if in those sittings or walkings when the mindfulness is not particularly strong, and we're just, we're kind, it's that more or less mindfulness, we're kind of there, but not really there, and the mind's just wandering a lot. There's no, there's no basis for investigation, and so the mindfulness is the foundation. When there is somewhat of a continuity of mindfulness, and there's a stability, then the investigation not only becomes possible, it almost, it almost happens by itself. So I would, you certainly need that foundation of mindfulness you know, in, in order to investigate. But you're all experienced yogis now. You know, so just play. You know, really see, explore. Mm-hmm. How to juggle or straddle these two dimensions of our existence? 
Okay, so it's a really important question of how, how do we integrate the relative and ultimate levels? You know, the relative conventional level of self and other and relationship and, and the more ultimate level of seeing the emptiness of it all. I think the I'm trying to think of how to frame this. I don't know if you've noticed, but that the older one gets, the synapses kind of work slower. <laughs> I don't know, whatever jumps the synapses into have a little less oomph. <laughs> In the context of a retreat, obviously, this is a very extraordinary time to be exploring the more ultimate level. Right? Because there are, there are very few distractions, no responsibilities other than doing this. You know, and so this is an opportunity to be really exploring the impermanent, unsatisfying, selfless nature of these arisings. Whatever wisdom is developed, you know, in this context, then can be brought to our life in the world where, for the most part, we're operating on the relative level. You know, because we, we're in relationship to people and we have our responsibilities and we're, we're just operating in that conventional way. One of the most powerful practices to bring to our relative world is understanding the importance of and the power of seeing our motivation behind our actions. Because we're acting a lot in the world, we're acting in speech. It's, it's you know, everything I said in the last two talks where the Buddha highlighted the ten unwholesome actions. He said, these are going to cause suffering. But the only way we can actually avoid doing them is if we're aware in our life in the world of those motivations as they come up. You know, before we act, what are we doing? Are we aware? Are we mindful? Is this skillful? Is it unskillful? So that's an important application. That's still on the relative level, right? but it's bringing in our Dharma understanding to that level. The place where it becomes very useful to Say, to call up the wisdom of emptiness. You know, the, the insights that we've developed on retreat in our life in the world is in times of suffering. Suffering becomes a powerful signal to us. Okay, in something's going on here and I'm not understanding, I'm holding on in some way, I'm resisting in some way. Remember that powerful teaching where the Buddha said, we are 100% responsible for the suffering in the mind. Conditions may be painful, that's something different. But if our minds are suffering, it's because there are defilements of one kind or another. And so when we're suffering, instead of drowning in it, it actually becomes just a powerful call to investigate. Right? That, that's really a time to investigate. What's happening here? What am I attached to? What am I clinging to? Is it a point of view? Is it a state? Is it a situation? What am I resisting? What am I not letting in? Right? And to the degree that we can bring the insight that we've developed here on retreat to those moments of investigation, that really is the integration of the two levels. You know, there's Ajahn Chah, he just had this wonderful line. He said, there's two kinds of suffering. 
this suffering that leads to more suffering, that is when we're just drowning in it and lost in it and don't understand it, and this suffering which leads to the end of suffering, which is suffering in in our lives, even not suffering, but just difficulties, places where we feel stuck, if we bring investigation to it and see, yeah, what, what's going on here? What can I learn? Where am I caught? How can I be free? That's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. You know, and that's really, our whole life is our practice. That's a good note to end on. Our life is our practice. Thank you. Let's just sit for moments. the merit of all our practice together be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the awakening of all beings everywhere. <laughs>